Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here in the United States. I am your host, Michelle, and while I am a skeptic by nature, I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I will present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us out to Tennessee, and this is the city of Sevierville. Yes, if you look it up, it looks like you would pronounce it Severville or whatnot, but it is Severville. We are going to Tennessee, so give the Southerners their, you know, their deuce. This is the story of the Wheatlands Plantation. I am going to give a little disclaimer that this episode does contain accounts of both slavery and murder. So going into the history of the Wheatlands Plantation. The property where the Wheatlands Plantation is was situated next to a foot trail that was used by the indigenous Cherokee tribe known as the Great Indian Footpath. In 1790, a man named John Severe actually followed this path to locate the Cherokee tribe. He was looking to rid the area of the tribe so that settlers could take over the land and use it for plantations and whatnot. This actually led to a battle that would become known as the Battle of Boyd's Creek, and this was between Sevier's men and the local tribe. After the battle, there was an estimated death number on the Cherokee side of 28, and on the side of Sevier's men, two soldiers had passed away. The people who had died from the tribe were buried in a mass grave where it is actually located now behind where the main home is on the property. The two soldiers who passed away each have a grave in the side yard of where the home is now. The property where Wheatlands would one day be was actually deeded to a man named Timothy Chandler. Timothy was a veteran of the Revolutionary War, and as payment for his service in the war, he was deeded this property. In 1791, this is the year that Timothy was said to leave Virginia and arrive in the Boyd's Creek area to establish his property. Though there was a land deed I found that didn't date the property to him until 1807, and I also found records through childbirth that he likely arrived in the area around 1780. He had a home built for his family on the property, which included his wife and his five children. He ended up establishing the property as a plantation and a farm for his family. Timothy, the original owner here, owned 14 slaves who would help him take care of the livestock on site that included horses, cattle, mules, sheep, and pigs. There are some reports you will read that say John established the farm first, but he would have only been five when the property was established, and Timothy is his father, so it's definitely Timothy who owned the property first. In 1819, Timothy passed away and left the property to his son, John. John lived there with his family until 1823, when the farmhouse that Timothy Chandler had built on the property originally 
burned down. The fire was said to have been caused by John's children. Three of his daughters were using a lantern in one of the bedrooms upstairs while they were trying to teach one of the slave girls to read. Unfortunately, John's three daughters, his son, and the slave girl all perished in the fire. Around 1825, John ended up building a new home to replace the burned down one, which is actually the plantation home we know today as Wheatland's Plantation. He put a coffin door on the home as a remembrance to his four children who had died. The home is a two-story brick home, and it's built in what is called the Federal style. It is an antebellum mansion that was named for the abundant wheat crops that they harvested each year. In addition to harvesting wheat, they also harvested crops such as sweet potatoes, wheat, corn, oats, and hay. In addition to crops, they also sold wool, honey, and butter. And there was a three-story distillery on site where they made and processed wheat whiskey that they would make for distribution. And the plantation itself actually sits on the French Broad River, and this gave it access to shipping their whiskey in barrels as far as even New Orleans, Louisiana. They were also shipping goods more locally, including that of their livestock. The plantation itself consisted of the main home, there was a smokehouse, the distillery, there was a summer kitchen and dining hall, there was a tannery, a granary, a loom house, multiple, multiple sheds, there was a big barn, and there was even six cabins for the slaves' quarters. Now, for those who couldn't fit in the slave quarters of the six cabins, there was a large barn for the elite. I'm not sure what would make a slave elite or not. Um, I'm guessing they had a little bit more room in this large barn. I'm not sure. John ended up growing the plantation extensively. Remember, Timothy had only had 14 slaves, and now John has six cabins and a barn to hold all of his slaves. With him under the control, the plantation actually became Sevier County's largest plantation covering over 4,700 acres by 1850. The 3,700 acres were mostly for wheat for the distillery, and a thousand of the acres were for the other crops and the animals. And again, as his plantation grew, so did his need for slave labor, and it was reported at times that he had as many as 188 slaves working for him. This, of course, you know, getting free slave labor just for the cost of maybe feeding them. John became very, very wealthy, and he actually ended up loaning out money to many people. He was very prominent in the area and was even visited by people like Andrew Jackson and his wife, Rachel. Before the war, John married a union woman named Anne Whalen Irwin, and he left her in charge of the plantation while he was going to war. He did this so that they would see him as loyal to the Union side so that his family's life would be spared and nothing would become of his plantation while he was gone. During the war, the home and the plantation were actually used as winter quarters for the Union military who came from Pennsylvania and Michigan. 
Now, while the family was spared as they were seen as union sympathizers, there was actually an attempt on John's life by two Confederate soldiers, but the two soldiers were killed just inside the front door of the home. The Civil War ended in 1865, making the slaves free men. What John Chandler did is he offered the freed slaves a living wage to remain on staff. And many of the slaves actually did agree and stayed on staff for pay. And then in 1875, when John Chandler passed away, those who stayed on for pay inherited some of the lands of Wheatland Plantation. And what these people did is they formed a group called the Chandler Gap Community, which was just south of the plantation. John did leave a majority of his plantation to his son, Timothy, who had been named after his father, though he did will some of the land tracts to his other four children as well. This wasn't uncommon during the time you would usually leave property and things to your oldest son. In 1889, a Queen Anne-style front porch and windows were added to the house, and in the late 1930s, unfortunately, the distillery on site did burn to the ground. The Chandler family did maintain ownership of the plantation until 1966, and between 1966 and 2011, there were actually three sets of owners of the property. There are multiple grave sites on the property, including that of 69 slave graves. There are, of course, the two soldiers who were killed during the Battle of Boyd's Creek, as well as the burial grounds for the Cherokee tribespeople. Currently, the surviving structures on the property are, of course, the home itself, the smokehouse is still there, the summer kitchen and the loom house are still there, and some of the original sheds are still standing. One of the storage sheds was built around 1825 and sits right behind the home. And it is said that it may have housed part of the distillery items and it was also an ice house. The smokehouse itself dates back to the early 1800s and as of July 7th of 1975, all of the surviving structures were added to the National Registry of Historic Places. As of 2011, the property is now only seven acres and was purchased by two men named Richard Parker and John Burns. And what they wanted to do is restore the home and possibly eventually reopen the distillery. A 501c3 nonprofit group was formed called the Wheatland Foundation. And what they did is they aided in the restoration of the home Though I don't believe the group exists anymore, I couldn't find a tax ID number or anything from them, so I'm sure that after it was restored, they probably disbanded. Um, all I could find on them was basically a couple news articles. In May of 2012, the two men who live on site had restored the home and completed it with period furnishing, including some items from the Chandler family themselves. After completing the home, they opened it for tours, including some ghost investigations. They also hosted events such as weddings, and you could even stay overnight in some of the upstairs bedrooms. Unfortunately, we've kind of all fallen out of that time period where we can go visit it and things like that, because as of July 2017, the two men actually put the property up for sale. 
It was sold off to a family and it is privately owned. They are no longer open for tours. There is no ghost tours. It is a family and people driving by have stated they see children playing in the yard, things like that. So please do not trespass on their property or bother them at all. They're just trying to live their life in their home. I'm now going to get into the haunted reports of what is said to be going on at Wheatland's plantation. When you walk into the parlor, you can actually see bloodstains on the floor from where 19-year-old Timothy McMahon was said to have beaten his father, Samuel Timothy Chandler McMahon, to death with an iron poker on October 18th of 1942. It was reported that Samuel had been drinking heavily and began shooting his gun off in the house. His son, Timothy, ended the gunfire by ending his father's life. Another report is that Timothy's mother was actually the owner of the estate, and when she passed away, she actually left the property to her son, Timothy, since Samuel drank way too much. This enraged Samuel, and he got into a fight with his son, and Timothy ended up killing Samuel by stabbing him with an iron poker just below the ribs. Since his murder, people have heard a yelling of a man, they've heard thuds like somebody hitting the floor, and sometimes they will hear a gurgling noise, which seems to be if he was stabbed, maybe his lungs filling up with fluid and he's kind of dying, I guess. This could be associated with possibly a residual haunting event and maybe not a spirit or ghost, but a residual haunting event, for those who don't know, is it's a big traumatic event that happens and it kind of replays on a loop. So while it might not be a spirit haunting, it's more of an event replaying. It has been reported that there have been many attempts to actually remove the bloodstains, but they always stay or return. Now, I couldn't find much information on this account. Um, there wasn't really any news articles, which I found strange since this is a relatively new event in the grand scheme of things. Although I have found multiple retellings of this based on hearsay. But again, this was a very prominent family. They would have been able to definitely be able to cover up such a heinous retelling of what happened with their family. But one substantial report was from a former worker at the property named Padge Chandler. His last name was Chandler as he was a descendant of the slaves who went on to take the Chandler name. He stated that he actually witnessed 19-year-old Timothy murder his father. I did get a chance to see Samuel's death certificate, though I will say it is very difficult to read I will post it on social media and maybe you can better decipher it, but the certificate did state from what I could see that he had some injury to his bowels with a mention of a perforation. The person who made out the death certificate did not list what happened other than stating it was an injury. You can check off if, you know, it was murder or something like that. Those things were not checked off. Though, there are numbers used by the medical community that differentiate medical diagnoses. The two codes that were on his death certificate were 168 and 129. In 1942, which is when these events happened, 
129 meant the cause of death was peritonitis, which is basically inflammation of the abdomen area, which includes the bowels. The code 168 refers to a homicide, so the story of the family murder could definitely be true. But Samuel did not die in the home, but he might have been injured in the spot in the home as stated. He actually died in a hospital in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is about 14 miles from the property. Now, this residual haunting event could still be probable. Um, he was probably already in the throes of death when he was taken to the hospital, but his cause of death, again, something perforated his bowels. He did die of a homicide. You might wonder what happened to the son. Well, he did not go to jail for murder. He ended up going to war and serving, but when not in the war, he actually continued to live at Wheatland. He died on February 22nd of 1963 at the early age of 39. His cause of death was acute heart failure, which struck him due to his alcoholism, which led to cirrhosis of the liver. Apparently, he had been an alcoholic for about 20 years, which would have started right after his father's death. So maybe there was some guilt there, some sadness, whatever it might be. Spirits of slave children have also been witnessed running and playing on the grounds, and some will even play hide-and-seek with visitors on the property. There have also been reports of an older black woman seen sitting on a bench under a pecan tree. When seen, she is surrounded by yellow flowers, but there is no bench there, so the family ended up adding one, and it is reported, but not confirmed, that three separate psychics who each visited on separate occasions described seeing this same thing, though the site had no flowers at the time they were there as the buttercups were not blooming at the time of year that they came to see the tree. One report from a family with a young son was pretty dramatic. Apparently, as they walked through the home, the boy became more and more fearful. Even though it wasn't hot outside and he wasn't sweating, the boy ended up passing out. Once he woke, he told his mother he had seen an apparition of a young black boy who was dripping wet. The angry ghost ran towards the boy and straight into his chest. As the apparition did this, the boy passed out. Now remember there are generations of slaves as well as freed slaves who worked and lived on the property for generations. Slave records were not well kept, so these accounts are difficult to verify. There are 69 slave graves on site, so I'm sure at least a few of these probably were children. There's also seen the apparition of a young girl in a blue dress. She's usually seen in the house running up and down the stairs. In addition to these apparitions, people will see objects move in the home without explanation. Shadows and shadow people will be seen throughout the property. These could be um, the deceased slaves who are still doing their work even in their afterlife, which is really sad to think about as they were used as slaves their whole lives and now they continue on that forever. People will also hear voices throughout the graveyard and spirit box sessions have been done on the property as well. They are said to have caught the sounds of indigenous people chanting, which could be due to the mass graves of the Cherokee killed in the Battle of Boyd's Creek. 
the home was actually also built over a large geode. You can actually see portions of the geode protruding from the basement floor. And this geode is actually a kind of stone that is said to act kind of like a magnet that draws spirits towards it. So it makes it difficult for people to leave in the afterlife. In the basement, there are also reports of a child spirit in there. There are many family members of the Chandler family who have actually passed away and are said to haunt the halls and the gardens on the property. Timothy Chandler, who is the original owner of the property, did pass away on site, though he would have lived in the original home that burned down, but he may be one of the people walking the property as a shadow person. Armstrong Chandler was actually just a baby when he passed away. He was born May 17th of 1825 and passed away just after his first birthday on June 18th of 1826. Maybe this is possibly the baby crying in the basement. It was also said that three of the children of John Chandler died in a fire along with a slave girl. So in researching ancestry records, all of the children except the baby Armstrong lived well into adulthood. And while the original home did burn down, the cause is not recorded anywhere. Possibly his daughters did cause the fire, but per ancestry and genealogy, they did not die in the home. On July 2nd of 1927, John Chandler did die in the home after a long battle with cancer. In 1966, Blanche McMahon, the last direct descendant of the Chandlers, did die in the home. I looked at her death certificate, and she was living in the home at the time of her death, but she did not pass away in the home. She actually had a heart attack and passed away in a hospital in Knoxville, Tennessee. On February 14th of 1936, Del Chandler McMahon died of a heart attack and a stroke in the home. There are generations of the Chandler family who lived in the home, and many of them reportedly did die here. Del Chandler herself reported that she witnessed a murder during the Civil War. She stated that the murderer saw a man working in one of the barns was her father and shot the man to death, though luckily it was not her father. She did not state who the murderer was or the man that was killed or what happened to the murder victim's body. This is based on records from Dell's daughter-in-law named Blanche McMahon. Those are the reports of the Chandler family. I could have kept going on and on, but unfortunately the Chandler family name is very difficult to research. A lot of people have tried to kind of dig in here and it's gotten a little mucky. There's also tons of people who are named after everyone. For example, Timothy had John. John named his son Timothy, and it just keeps going, so people keep intersecting who's who in genealogy records, unfortunately. But as you can see, a lot of people have passed away in the home. And let's also not forget that it was reported earlier that two Civil War so soldiers were killed in the front room of the house. It is said in 1888 that a woman died on the staircase of a heart attack, and in 1932, a woman fell down the staircase and broke her neck. Both of these accounts do not have names of who these women would have been. I found nothing in newspaper archives, so both of these could be legends. I'm not sure. Not really sure where they came from. 
But at the end of this, there is a ton of history at Wheatland's plantation. There are murders, there's deaths in the home, deaths of the Cherokee tribe. There are slaves who died while living on site, and even those who fought in the Revolutionary War. There is definitely reason to believe that some spirits may remain here. Maybe they're unable to move on. Maybe they don't know they're dead. Maybe it's the large geode in the basement that keeps them trapped there. Whatever the cause, whether it's because they died here, are buried here, or lived here, maybe they want to remain in the home in their afterlife, or they're just not ready to go yet. I would be curious to see if anyone was able to tour the Wheatlands Plantation while it was still open for tours. I'd love to hear anything you might have found out about the ghost tours and the history, any other facts you might have. Or maybe you have some proof, some great pictures, things like that. I would love to hear your feedback on this episode and a suggestion maybe you might have for a future episode in your state. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday, wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a review. If you enjoyed it, I'd recommend a five star. And definitely follow this podcast so you know as soon as a new episode is ready and you can show a little bit of love. You can also follow the podcast social media pages for more information on this episode, future episodes, and past episodes, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, or you can always shoot an email over to paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.